The American Council of the Blind presents ACB Reports, a monthly news magazine containing topics of interest to people who are blind or have low vision. I'm Mike Duke. This month, learn about two upcoming important conferences, plus get tips on coping with post-holiday depression. But first, Krista Merritt brings us our legislative update for January 2006. Earlier in 2005, the House of Representatives passed Bill Number H.R. 27, and this was a bill that reauthorized the Workforce Investment Act, and this is a bill that encompasses the VR program. It's an important bill in a multitude of ways because, number one, what this bill does is it degrades the position of commissioner of RSA to a directorship. And that's significant in a couple of ways because it sort of takes out the process of having it presidentially appointed and confirmed by the Congress, specifically the United States Senate. So this directorship would happen internally within the department structure, and it would have no influence of Congress, and um, naturally what we do in terms of lobbying and grassroots advocacy affects what happens in Congress. So folks will have uh, less impact on who the director is, and that's just a bad thing for the disability community in general. The House bill also consolidates some employment programs, although the programs that are being consolidated are not disability programs. It does create a bad precedent. We heard a lot about something called WIA Plus and WIA Consolidation, and that is thorough consolidation of all employment programs that be assigned to states to be block granted. This would be a terrible thing. The fact that the House bill does it to other programs is bad enough. So unfortunately, this bill has passed the House. Hopefully, it won't pass into law. Uh, in terms of the Senate, what's happening now is the Senate bill is scheduled to come up for a floor vote. The Senate bill is S-1021. This bill is significantly better than the House bill. We would certainly like the Senate language to pass because it doesn't consolidate employment programs and it doesn't degrade the position of commissioner of RSA to a directorship. So our message is get the bill passed. This is on the calendar to come up for a vote under unanimous consent, and that's also a very good thing because what that means is that there will be no amendments to the legislation that come up from the floor. Naturally, when it comes up under the chair of the Senate Health Committee, you know, there would be some changes, but hopefully these changes wouldn't be significant, and hopefully the changes would stop there and not just anything happening from the floor. So we really want this bill to pass, and that's S-1021. When is that coming up? It's on the calendar to come up at any time. We thought it was going to come up about three weeks ago. There are messages floating around that they're going to take it up for a vote that day. Unfortunately, that didn't happen. So we're still working towards that. We want it to come up for a vote as soon as possible. The sooner, the better. Uh, On another note, uh, I just wanted to recap about RSA restructuring. Uh, there's lots of activity, you know, of course, earlier in 2005 regarding RSA restructuring. There was rallies in Washington, D.C. There was a lot of protest about the restructuring of the department, specifically because it was eliminating the Division of Blindness Services, the Deafness and Communications Branch, and uh, just flipping the entire RSA department around. Um, and 
fact, those are already underway. They took effect October 1st. So unfortunately, that's a done deal. Those changes are being made now. Uh, and what we're doing on the national level is monitoring that process and staying in touch with the folks at RSA that we've met with, specifically Assistant Secretary John Hager, who's um, kind of in charge of this whole thing. And actually, the day now that we're recording this session, they have advertised vacancies. Uh, for some positions in Washington, D.C. on the national level. So if you contact us, folks would probably have seen those postings by now, but those are going to be significant postings. I'd like to segue a little bit into another employment subject that we've been talking a lot about, and that's the Randolph Shepard program. Earlier last year in October, the Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee held a hearing specifically on the Randolph Shepard program and the Javits-Wagner O'Day Act. This was a very significant hearing and uh, was extremely well attended by the blind community. Basically, what the Senate Health Committee was doing was kind of, for the first time, looking at both programs and seeing how they can improve and update it. And they had a lot of concerns about both programs, JWAT and the Randolph-Shepard Act. Some of their concerns were well-founded. Most, we believe, just came out of hearsay, misinformation, miseducation, and uh, rumor about basically what the program is and what it isn't. Everybody who's involved with the Randolph-Shepard program has a big job ahead of them, and that's educating Congress on what the program is all about, what it does for people, the positive aspects of the program, and also keeping in touch with members of Congress and trying to figure out the changes they want to make and why and trying to influence that process. The information that we have so far does indicate that the Senate does want to make some changes to the program. And all groups concerned with the Randolph-Shepard program are meeting and having discussions on basically the strategy that they want to use to kind of lessen harm that may be done to the program and, and also increase opportunity for positive changes within the program. In spring 2006, the Senate's going to be looking at the information that came out in the hearing in October 2005, probably offering a legislative proposal. By this time, we hope to have as many folks on the Hill educated as possible on this program. We will be getting information out to folks in states and informing them of what the process is all about and our advocacy message on uh, where we would like to go and where we would like to see the Randolph-Shepard program. While this is going on, mostly you hear Senate, 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 but of course we all know that in order to become law, legislation has to pass both chambers of Congress. And this is very significant because on the House side, the corresponding committee to the Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions is, of course, the House Education and Workforce Committee. And this is not a committee that has done a heck of a lot in terms of looking at the Randolph-Shepard Act and the Randolph-Shepard program. So this is a great opportunity for uh, folks everywhere to contact their members who are on this committee and let them know what's going on. Let them know what a great program it is and how it helps people and that this is folks' bread and butter. This is how they support themselves. This is how they support their families. This is a good thing for people who are blind or visually impaired. Krista Merritt is a policy analyst for the Department of Advocacy and Governmental Affairs of the American Council of the Blind. To send comments and suggestions about this program, send an email message to reports at acbradio.org or write to American Council of the Blind, 1155 15th Street, Northwest, 
Suite 1004, Washington, D.C., 20005. ACB Reports often presents information gleaned from the annual convention of the American Council of the Blind. Though of a much smaller size and scope than the national convention, another annual event of great importance to state and special interest affiliates is about to occur in February. That event is the Affiliate President's Meeting. ACB President Chris Gray says the attendees this year may expect an information-packed meeting. The mid-year meeting will be held in Jacksonville, Florida, and it's going to be at the Hyatt Regency Jacksonville Riverfront Hotel. The room rates will be $79 per night plus tax. And uh, one good thing is, Mike, that the rate of 79 is good for singles, doubles, triples, and quads. The beginning date of the meeting is Friday, the 17th of February, We had originally given some thought to starting on Friday evening, but I think uh, the way the conversations have gone, we've decided to abandon that idea because of people's travel and so forth. So the president's meeting will actually begin at 9 o'clock on Saturday morning and go through noon of Sunday morning. On Sunday, in all likelihood, in the morning, the board of directors and the presidents will hold concurrent but separate meetings. The agenda is still fairly up in the air, but it's my hope that we'll have a session from the ACB Board of Publications. We're going to have a fairly lengthy presentation about ACB's Social Security Administration litigation, and we thought we would review at a fairly high level for the presidents all of the items that will be presented in greater detail at the legislative seminar so that presidents can have a sense of what's going on legislatively during 2006. The other thing I know we're going to cover quite a bit during the meeting has to do with all of the issues surrounding the Randolph Shepard vending program, Javits Wagner O'Day program, and those types of employment programs that have been under such heavy scrutiny from the Congress. Those things, an update from ACB, and then uh, some interactive seminars, training for the president's will make up the bulk, I would say, of the president's meeting on Saturday and Sunday. This meeting then is to focus on state presidents and things that they should be doing in their affiliates or things that they can do to help their affiliates. That And the other thing is that there are sometimes when we want advice from the presidents about issues we're thinking about moving forward on. For example, this year I'm going to lead a discussion about databases and give some idea of the direction we're looking at for a new kind of email database for the organization and try and collect some information from the presidents about how they do their forms right now, how they register their members, and how many of them have the capability within their affiliates to actually use an interactive database at the national level. We try and provide material that's of use and value for the presidents to take back to their affiliates. But that shouldn't discourage anybody who's not a president from coming. We have a lot of people who have been presidents before or who have aspirations to be president of an affiliate later on who come, and I'm sure they get a lot out of the seminar too. Is there a registration fee to cover materials or anything? For the president's meeting, there is not a registration fee, just your transportation, whatever that is, and and your hotel and meals. 
or reservations at the Hyatt Regency Jacksonville Riverfront, phone 800-233-1234. That's 800-233-1234. This hotel will also be the site of the 45th Annual Convention of the American Council of the Blind, which will be held July the 8th through the 15th, 2006. Blind food service operators will also soon gather for an annual training session. The National Training Council of Blind Vendors will conduct its annual Sagebrush Conference in February. Ralph Sanders is the conference coordinator, as well as the Public Relations Committee Chairman for the American Council of the Blind. Sagebrush is the oldest, longest-running conference for professional business training for blind vendors in the country 2006 will be about the 28th year that we have had the conference. And the purpose of it is to provide blind vendors with a business forum in which to have discussions about ways in which to improve their businesses. What are the dates this year? This year it will be February 7th to the 12th. It's always been held in the January-February time range. With the exception of one year, it has always been in Las Vegas. What goes on during that six days? The ultimate purpose of the conference is business development. And so what mostly will happen is a series of seminars with business leaders from the industry to talk about trends and developments in the vending market. One day is devoted to a trade show. This year, we will spend a whole day dealing with congressional issues, which are of major importance to the Randolph Shepard program, and trying to develop strategies and plans to try to positively react to congressional issues that have come up. How does one go about registering for this conference? The easiest way to register for the conference is to go online to www ntcbv-sagebrush.com and fill out a registration form. We're also mailing some 2,000 hard copy forms to every blind vendor in the country and the state agencies so that people can also register by mail. Okay, and how many people usually attend? About 250-300. Sanders says that blind vendors have their own special interest affiliate within the American Council of the Blind. Randolph Shepard Vendors of America is one of the ACB affiliates that is designed specifically to cater to the interests of blind vendors. And one of the things that we've done in recent years is to emphasize the relationship between RSVA and ACB so that people understand the connection between the National Organization of the American Council of the Blind and the blind vendor community so that we get a much better interconnect between the two. Following Hurricane Katrina, the Randolph Shepard Vendors Association promptly reached out to help vendors displaced by the storm. One of the things that we're extremely proud of is that Randolph Shepard Vendors of America established a Katrina Emergency Relief Fund, and we have been able to raise over $50,000 that is currently being distributed to some 35 blind vendors in Mississippi and Louisiana who were displaced because of the hurricane. Some of those people were displaced short-term for as little as maybe two weeks, three weeks. Some of those people are displaced permanently, and some of those people will be displaced for upwards of a year. So 
the awards committee is currently in the process of trying to determine a strategy to make an award to people based on their application for assistance. And while we've currently raised about $50,000, I believe that before we're through, we'll probably raise close to $100,000. To learn more about the Randolph Shepard Vendors Association or about the Sagebrush Conference, visit www.ntcbv-sagebrush.com or phone 800-467-5299. You're listening to ACB Reports. Turn out the lights. The party's over They say that all Good things must end Call it a night The party's over And tomorrow starts The same old thing again What a crazy, crazy party Never seen so many people Laughing, dancing, look at you, you're having fun. When the party's over, everyone has gone home, and everything has been put away, some of us may become depressed. Clinical psychologist Dr. Jim Ball says that while depression may occur at any time, it is most likely to happen during winter. More people become depressed during the winter holiday season than any other time of the year, so it's a serious condition. So even if a person seems to be healthy, normal, the rest of the year, then is it the winter months or is it the holidays or a combination of the two? Well, it could be lots of things. One thing is that there is less sunshine from uh, Thanksgiving through New Year's than any other time of the year. And about 10% of the population has seasonal affective disorder, or SAD, which is from lack of sunlight. It's a physical thing. How does a person determine that they may be experiencing such depression? Either weight gain or loss is uh, something to be concerned about. And it's usually gain, but sometimes people lose weight with depression. Increased use of alcohol alcohol or other drugs when it's it's not your habit to do that. Too much or too little sleep, and it's usually too little sleep, especially with early morning awakening, uh, so that maybe two in the morning you awaken and you can't get back to sleep. And that happens, oh, say, uh, four nights a week or, or more. Guilt feelings are very common with depression, even if they're not reasonable. Extreme sadness or irritation. Uh, some people don't get so sad, but what you see is a lot of anger and irritation. Adolescents especially, they may not appear sad, but they may be very irritable if they're depressed. What about anxiety? Anxiety comes with depression. Anxiety is a separate diagnosis, but it's very common to be anxious and actually agitated, uh, unable to relax is very common in depression. A loss of interest, uh, a loss of interest in sex, but a loss of interest in lots of things, things that, that you once enjoyed are no longer fun. Feelings of worthlessness uh, and hopelessness. People complain of low energy, just a sort of an ongoing fatigue. Uh, they don't have the energy to do what uh, they might uh, feel responsible to do. Uh, some have difficulty concentrating, and in the extreme, there may be suicidal thoughts or even plans. 
the thing to do, of course, is to encourage a person to get professional help from someone such as yourself. But if I notice these symptoms in a friend or a family member, what do I need to do? As you said, uh, therapy and medications help, but uh, a lot of people who are depressed don't end up doing either one. And there's some other things you can do. One is to take responsibility for changing behaviors or things in your life that don't serve you well. These changes can make a, a positive difference in depression. Incidentally, there have been many studies comparing medications and psychotherapy, and uh, most of those studies come out with the same results. Now, this is with major depression. It's not just a little blues that a person might have. They both do an equal job. Now, uh, often the combination of the two do better than either one individually. You need to keep your expectations within reason. Uh, we have s sometimes expectations that are unrealistic, and you don't organize your time well. And you need to include in that time, uh, set aside time to relax or to enjoy something, so that it's not just to do this and do that, and I don't have enough time before the holiday to get it all done. So it's okay to not be driven to be doing things. It doesn't mean there's something wrong with you. That's right. In fact, if you're driven enough, you may have something wrong with you from the <laughs> getting depressed. You need to live in the present. You know, one of the big stresses is attempting to recreate the Christmas or the New Year's or whatever of our childhood. We have fond memories of uh, pleasant uh, times in childhood, and we want to recreate that again. Well, that can be a stress in itself. Uh, the good old days may not, they, they may be fonder in the memory of them than they are in reality anyway. The first major holiday after the death of a loved one is usually quite traumatic. Indeed it is, especially Christmas, that if you had someone who you loved that died six months ago, you will really miss them on Christmas, and you'll remember the last Christmas when they were there, and that, that's a heavy issue. And that's normal to an extent, but the problem, I would think, comes when that feeling begins to control what you do or don't do for the holiday. Yes, and the grief is natural and normal, and actually grief is very healing. You can be grieving and depressed, or you can do each independently. With depression, there's often a loss of self-esteem, and that's not likely to happen with the grief. You mentioned a while ago the term blues and depression. I think you used them in the same sentence. Yes. There's a difference between just having a, a normal bad day when it seems like nothing goes right and this depression that uh, you simply can't shake. That's right, and all of us do have those bad days. I certainly do. They don't last as long. If they last a day or two, that's not a depression. If it's depression, they're going to go on for a long period of time. Each of us can take steps to reduce holiday blues. One thing that we do during the holidays, there's a tendency to spend more money than we have. So making a budget and sticking to it would be uh, one way to limit that part of the uh, holiday blues. And if you're feeling stressed out, have people you can go to and ask for support. Sometimes it helps just to do something nice for somebody else that doesn't take a lot of time or energy, but it's something nice. It's good to spend time outdoors or in brightly lit rooms, especially if you have that seasonal affective disorder, and you could have it without knowing it. But if you get down every winter, then there's a chance that you do. And uh, again, that's a treatable condition. After that week of endless food, people, and parties, when all the parties are over, all the people have gone home, that's when it usually hits a lot of people. Well, it does. And uh, first of all, with all the parties and the eating and drinking, you're, you've likely gained some weight. 
and uh, most of us don't appreciate that. Uh, but depression can actually increase, even if it started before that time, it can increase right after the holiday. Uh, the fatigue sets in, the loneliness because all the family has gone back to their places, disappointments, and you may just feel overwhelmed after the holidays. Dr. Ball says it's not unusual for a depression to occur several months after a significant event and cited one example from his own practice. It's typical that some traumatic things that we go through are not experienced until a long time afterwards. I know in the 79 flood, I didn't get any patients who came in because of the flood right after it happened. It was about two to three months later that people started coming in. Is one group more affected than others? The holiday blues can be a particular problem in the elderly. They have less financial resources, not all of them, of course, but uh, that's uh, typically you, you may have a fixed income. You have a loss of independence. You can't move about as freely as you might like to. Uh, and you may be separated from your loved ones. You can't get to them. Also, you may not even have the ability to communicate Sometimes the elderly can't speak very well, can't write, and so you can't make that kind of contact with people that you love. Loss of mobility, just inability to get to religious services, if that's a real important thing for you during the holidays. Most of the elderly, if they're not in a nursing home, they're with family members and caretakers, and it's important for a caretaker to be able to recognize the signs of depression. They're not much different than I said earlier, except you're looking at it instead of feeling it. If you see persistent sadness or withdrawal from regular social activities or other things that uh, the elderly person enjoyed, slowed thinking or response. Incidentally, the fact that you're old doesn't mean you're going to get depressed. And some people think that, well, I'm old, I'm going to get depressed. Well, they don't go together necessarily. You don't want to let that be an excuse for it. Lack of energy or interest in things, uh, excessive worry, often about finances or health, because those are two big issues uh, when you're elderly. Feelings of worthlessness or helplessness and that the person might express. Uh, watch for extreme weight changes. Also, you might see they're pacing and fidgeting, or instead they're staring off into space for a long period of time. Zoned out or, or yes, what, obviously right. in a fantasy or whatever. Yeah. So if those things are happening, you, you need to get your uh, loved one to the doctor and, and let them uh, take a look at them. So do you start with the general practitioner, with your family doctor? Do you call up the local clinical psychologist right off the, the bat? Or, or I, would, I would go to the general practitioner because mm -hmm. there, may be, uh, there may be some physical reason, too. And also that general practitioner knows you pretty well and uh, can see some of the changes that uh, would alert them that maybe it's a depression. So they'll get you the right place if you're depressed. We used to have one, and I guess still do locally. I haven't seen it advertised in a long time, these helplines. Feel depressed, call this number for help. My understanding is that basically they're just someone to talk to. Well, that's true. They are trained to listen. Uh, they're not therapists, and they're not designed to do that, but they're good listeners. And sometimes what we need, especially if we're lonely, is someone to talk to. Dr. Ball says it is very important to focus on the positive aspects of the holidays. All of these holidays that may stress us out certainly have a lot positive about them. Uh, Thanksgiving celebrates the bounty that surrounds us. We have 
such a, a plenty that uh, it's a time to be thankful for it. And Christmas is a season for profound love and goodwill and caring. And uh, New Year's is a new beginning. So these are things that can be very, very gratifying. We've been talking with Dr. Jim Ball, a clinical psychologist in private practice in Jackson, Mississippi. In conclusion, your new host wishes to acknowledge the 20-year contribution of time and talent which Laura Oftedal shared through this program. Such long-term commitments are essential to the survival of any organization. The American Council of the Blind wishes Laura many successes in her new career. You've been listening to ACB Reports, heard on radio information services nationwide on side four of the Braille Forum cassette edition and throughout the world on acbradio.org. ACB Reports is produced at Radio Reading Service of Mississippi, a service of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Send suggestions and comments about this program to reports at acbradio.org. Contact the American Council of the Blind online at acb.org or phone 800-424-8666. Thanks for listening, and please join us again next month for another ACB Reports. Connecting the blind community around the world, this is ACB Radio.